Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. We have come to the part of the cycle where every breath you take, you will get a call from a political consultant. Hey, everybody from KQED Public Radio. This is a special edition of Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, Adam Schiff got into politics after working as a U.S. attorney, where he prosecuted an FBI agent accused of spying for the Soviet Union. Now, after two decades in the House of Representatives, Schiff is running for the U.S. Senate. The Los Angeles Democrat rose to prominence in Washington as a leading adversary of Donald Trump helping to manage Trump's first impeachment trial and later investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. He's won key endorsements from Democrats, including Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi and former Senator Barbara Boxer. And if the polls are right, Schiff will face a November runoff for the U.S. Senate against either Democrat Katie Porter or Republican Steve Garvey. And Representative Schiff joins us today right here in the studio here in San Francisco. Adam Schiff, welcome back to Political Breakdown. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, you know, we always like to begin at the beginning of people's lives. We feel like people learn a lot from that. I know you were born in Massachusetts. You moved to Arizona when you were about 10 years old. You were raised in a Jewish family. Tell us about your childhood. What was that like? And what was it like being raised uh, as a Jew in Arizona? Well, actually, I'm originally from Boston. Uh, So we lived in Boston for the first, uh, I guess it was nine years of my life, and then moved to Arizona briefly before moving to Northern California to the East Bay. Uh, and what I what I remember and, and talk about a lot on the campaign trail most about my early upbringing was that the fact that my father, who was in the schmata business, uh, the the clothing, clothing business, <laughs> for those of you out there who don't speak Yiddish, um, he made eighteen thousand a year. He was a traveling salesman, and on the strength of that single income, my parents bought our first home for eighteen thousand dollars. And I think about that compared to today when. Uh, so many people can't afford a place to live, or if they can, it's nowhere near where they work, and how dramatically things have changed. What brought our family out west were, you know, were the hopes of of better economic opportunities, and our family found them. Uh, we found good neighborhoods. We found good quality public schools. Uh, you know, they gave my brother and me every chance to succeed. I want that uh, not, not only for... Uh, you know, myself and my family, but I want it for all Californians and I want it for the future. And I think that California dream has moved too far away for many people. 
But if you really want to start at the beginning, (laughs) we really need to start with the fact that uh, my wife is named Eve and we are at Adam and Eve because that goes back to the very (laughs) beginning. beginning, Well, I do know that there was a bit of a split in your household. I believe your mom was a Democrat and dad a Republican. The other way around. Oh. Uh, And actually, my father Oh, you know what? We must have messed that up the last time, too. (laughs) (laughs) My father's very much still a Democrat. He is turning 96 this week. Uh, wow. He's a leap year baby. Mazel tov. So he's actually turning 24. Oh, um, exciting. My kids would love that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what was that like? And I mean, did politics factor in? Obviously, the polarization was a little different back then or not not, not the same. <laughs> it, it wasn't the same. And But it's interesting. My brother sort of aligned with my mother and the Republican side of the family. I aligned with, more with my father. But my folks definitely emphasized that neither party had a monopoly on good judgment all the time. And uh, and and the Republican Party was a very different party at that time. I have a wonderful photo on my office in Washington of my mother's father with uh, President Eisenhower. My mm-hmm. grandfather was a Republican county chair in Western Massachusetts, but it was a very different kind of a party. Um, Eisenhower wouldn't fit into today's GOP, nor would Reagan, nor would a lot of other people. Um, but uh, but it was never acrimonious in our family. Uh, although I do remember my mother's father um, using a similar epithet for Democrats and for the Red Sox from time to time. Uh, the Red Sox were always losing uh, when I was a kid, and he would call them a bunch of bums. And uh, and it usually referred to Democrats in the pejorative of those damn Dems. <laughs> You're, you said your you know, dad was in the Shmata business. Uh, you were raised Jewish. I was raised Jewish as well. I was bar mitzvahed. Were you bar mitzvahed? I mean, I how was. did Judaism I, figure into your life as a kid? Uh, I was bar mitzvahed at Temple Isaiah, uh, so here in the Bay Area. And I think there are a couple of things that really um, informed a lot of my philosophy about uh, work in Congress and as a representative, but life in general. One, it won't surprise you, is the whole idea of tikkun olam, that we have a obligation to mend uh, the broken world, and the world is more broken than ever. But I, I actually keep coming back to a passage from Micah that says, what is required of us but to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God? And I always thought those three injunctions were the best advice you could give to a uh, a political leader, um, and uh, and so I I find those ideas uh, guide my service. Yeah. I mean, is that what helped lead you into? Because you started out in public service, not as an elected official, but um, doing legal work, right? As a, as a prosecutor, you went, I think, to Harvard for law school um, and became a U.S. attorney. What drew you to that? I guess I don't want to make assumptions. <laughs> uh, you know, I, w- I was actually in, in college, I was quite conflicted. I was pre-med, but I was a poli-sci major. I knew I wanted to give back in some form, and I thought these were two potential ways to give back. Um, ultimately, I went uh, gravitated towards law. I was kind of excited by the idea, not necessarily of public office, but of, of public service of some kind. Uh, and and I... I have found it tremendously rewarding. You do get to make a positive difference in people's lives. Um, but uh, I was reminded when you mentioned my law school pedigree of a uh, riff that Speaker Pelosi now likes to do when anyone mentions the Ivy League, uh, she will say, Josh Hawley went to Yale Law School. Ron DeSantis went to Harvard Law School. Ted Cruz went to Harvard Law School. I've had it up to here with the Ivy League. Don't give me the Ivy League. 
And then she'll turn to me and she'll say, no offense. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were working uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and one of your most, I think, famous cases is you helped finally prosecute after two failed attempts. You prosecuted uh, someone who was accused of spying for the Soviet Union, passing information to them. What did you learn from that? Uh, it, it's uh, it was a case involving a guy named Richard Miller, uh, who was an FBI agent, and not just any guy. He was yeah, he was an FBI. He agent. was an FBI agent who was uh, targeted because of his philandering, his money troubles. Uh, the case had been tried twice uh, unsuccessfully. It was later reassigned to me, and uh, what I learned in the course of the prosecution was really uh, Russian tradecraft how they identify people with certain vulnerabilities and what they look for. Obviously, people with access to classified information, which he had. Uh, He was part of the FBI's counterintelligence squad, meant to be our eyes on foreign spies operating in the United States. And he was seduced by an attractive Soviet asset named Svetlana. For some reason, they always seem to be named Svetlana. Um, So it was a sex for secrets case. And it taught me a lot about Russian tradecraft, which I never thought I would find handy again. But uh, years later, when looking at Russian intervention to help elect Donald Trump, uh, you know, I think it wasn't coincidental. They were targeting someone uh, and continued to, uh, not for recruitment, but someone who cares about money more than anything else, someone of low moral, (laughs) no morals, uh, someone who's easily manipulated. And all those criteria fit Mr. Trump to a T. All right. We're going to come back and talk more about that, but we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Congress member and U.S. Senate candidate Adam Schiff. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to this special edition of Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Our guest, I think it's fair to say, is one of Donald Trump's least favorite people, <laughs> Congressman Adam Schiff, who, as you may have heard, is running for the U.S. Senate seat held by Dianne Feinstein before her death last year. Well, and I think that is a, a, a badge you wear with honor, Congressman Schiff. Um, but let's go back. We want to talk a little bit about when you first came into elected office. So you ran in state assembly in 91, and then I, I think, you came in like 11th that first time. It I took did. a few years. Your slogan was criminals beware in that <laughs> first race. Um, and you eventually made it to the state Senate in Sacramento in 1997. And you really ran on a tough on crime platform, uh, pro death penalty. You wrote a lot of bills that, you know, related to things like allowing to charge children as young as 14 as adults. Um 
you know, sentencing enhancements, things that have really gone out of favor in the Democratic Party. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like why you focused on that so much and how your thinking has changed, because you really say that you support a lot of the reforms we've seen in recent years. Yeah, the 90s, as you'll recall or, or may know, were you know, frankly, that was very mainstream Democratic thinking. It wasn't a Democrat or Republican thing. Uh, the philosophy at the time was that uh, sentences, longer sentences would protect the public. I think we have seen over time that they haven't. Uh, in fact, they've had a disproportionate impact on communities of color without necessarily improving public safety. Um, I'm very proud, though, in that period in the 1990s that I wrote one of the most far-reaching proactive juvenile justice bills in state history, the Schiff Cardinus Crime Prevention Act of 2000, which uh, commentators and Rand have studied and uh, found to have dramatically reduced recidivism rates, incarceration rates, arrest rates, and saved taxpayers lots of money on incarceration And now we're doing away with state juvenile justice facilities entirely, yeah. Yes. Well, it, it was ahead of its time in a, in a good and positive way, and I'm very proud of that. Um, but, I, you know, what I've come to see is that what is more effective in curbing crime and deterring crime than length of sentence is the certainty with which people will be caught and the certainty of consequences. And I think some of the problem we're having today with all the smash and grab robberies and the repeated thefts is that there's a sense that people are immune, uh, that they will never be caught, and if they're caught, there won't be a consequence. Um, I am a big believer in, in technologies like DNA evidence, and over my years in Congress have brought millions back to California to eliminate the rape kit backlog in L.A. City and L.A. County. I brought back uh, money to establish a regional DNA crime lab to help solve these property crimes and hold people accountable. And I think a combination of more and better community-based policing, uh, the use of tools like DNA evidence, uh, we can apprehend more of the folks that are committing these crimes and feeling a sense of impunity about it. Uh, and make sure they're held to account. You know, all of us, including elected officials, our views on things change over time. And I think sometimes when politicians change their point of view, there's always a question of, well, did they really have a change of heart? Or are they sensing the wind is changing and they want to change and get reelected or elected to something? And I'm, I'm wondering about the death penalty for you, capital punishment. I mean, this is something you did support as did Dianne Feinstein for many, many years. Why did you change your position on that? Was there a moment, was there a particular thing, a crime, an incident, a case that really shifted your thinking? Yeah, for a long time, I supported the death penalty uh, for those who killed cops and those who could kill killed kids. And, you know, my thinking at the time was that, particularly with police officers, when you're making an arrest of someone who has a record and may be facing a long time, what deters them from killing the police officer? Um, and and so I wrestled with it. Um, but over time, I came to see that the death penalty is disproportionately applied um, against people of color. And I also, you know, came to see, you know, frankly, by virtue of new technologies that aren't so new anymore, but like DNA, that people on death row uh, were exonerated. And I don't mean exonerated in the sense of they had poor legal counsel and therefore they get a new trial. DNA would later reveal they actually were not the right person on death row. And a combination of those two things um, you know, convinced me that I shouldn't support the death penalty in, anymore. I, I still don't know and I don't know that we can ever measure whether it is a deterrent, uh, but if it's not going to be applied in a, uh, in a neutral way and if it's 
Uh, and if it, it, there's a potential of error, then I can't support it. So there's it. no circumstances under which you would support the death penalty? No, I, I don't support it. All right. I want to switch gears to another controversial topic, which is what's happening in the Middle East uh, with Israel and Hamas. I mean, the Hamas attack on October 7th was horrible and barbaric. And I know that you strongly support Israel's right to defend themselves. I, I also though, want to ask about what has happened in Gaza. I mean, the estimates of those killed are staggering. We're talking 27,000 people, nearly 12,000 children. I mean, when you look at what's happening, it feels very unimaginable. And I just wonder, like, do you feel that's proportionate? Is there a point where it would be too far? Uh, you know, I, I certainly feel, um, you know, terrible sense of loss and tragedy uh, with the loss of so many Palestinian lives in Gaza, uh, as well as the loss of uh, more than 1,200 Israeli lives. Um, you know, there are sadly losses of life by uh, those serving the IDF practically every day. Uh, who Israeli are, defense forces. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that we can uh, grieve both the loss of Israeli lives and Palestinian lives. Some some <laughs> seem to think that that's incompatible, but I think it's very compatible with human nature. Um, I do think that this is exactly what Hamas wanted to happen. Um, when you see, and the Israeli embassy makes this available, the videotape of um, the terrorist body cam footage and um, CCTV footage and victim cell phone footage, the murder, the dismemberment, the torture, uh, the barbaric nature of it was designed to provoke exactly the reaction uh, that it did from well, Israel. Isn't that an argument against how forceful the response has been? Um, it is certainly an explanation why Israel, and I think any other country would be in exactly the same position, could not fail to respond, uh, particularly when the, the terrorist organization that committed those uh, horrible acts is threatening to do it over and over and over again. So you do but, believe it's proportionate? Uh, I, I believe that um, that Israel has to defend itself, and I also believe that Israel has to make every effort to reduce civilian casualties. But I also think that Hamas has deliberately made this extremely difficult for Israel to do by embedding itself within civilian populations, by burying itself under hospitals and schools. Um, you know, Hamas could avoid the civilian casualties in Gaza if it separated itself from the civilian population. It obviously doesn't want to do that because civilian casualties are part of Hamas's strategy. President Biden said that what Israel has done and is doing is over the top. In other words, they've gone too far. And I think it was in one of the debates you said something along the lines of, well, I wouldn't characterize it that way. What about that do you disagree with? Well, I think the president is right to continue pressing Israel to make every effort to reduce casualties. Uh, and and that, I think, is uh, the focus of the administration, and I share that focus. I, I wouldn't phrase it that way, uh, as the president did, but I do agree that um, we need to make every effort uh, to urge Israel uh, to uh, conduct its military operations in a way to minimize civilian loss of life. And, uh, you know, in, in a dense environment like Gaza, that is very difficult to do. Uh, I think we have seen a change in the nature of the military operations since the beginning of the war, and we have seen as a result a reduction in civilian casualties. But I think we need to continue pressing that case. Does it, I, I, well, also, but the, I mean, it's not just 
the bombing, right? It's the sanitary conditions. It's a lack of food. It's yeah, I mean, and that, that, that was what I was going to say. Also, yeah. we we have to continue to press to get humanitarian assistance into Gaza, to get civilians out of harm's way, uh, to get the hostages out. And uh, and I I applaud the administration for its efforts to, I hope, uh, organize a, a pause in the fighting to get hostages released, to get more aid in. Um, and I hope that comes to fruition. And more than that, I hope the administration's efforts more broadly to get the Saudis to recognize Israel, to get Israel to recognize a real and viable path to a two-state solution. But at this uh, point, Netanyahu, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said, I don't support a two-state right, solution. Like and, there... and, and it seems like he's pretty firm on that. At the same time, he is, you know, what the policy, what they're doing now is dragging the country's reputation down internationally in a way that I, I've never seen in my lifetime. And so, and as you know, Netanyahu is not a friend of Democrats, particularly. He very much embraced Donald Trump. And we're seeing fissures very much so, including in the Michigan primary. And, you know, are you, how concerned are you about the impact of all this on your party? Well, look, I think what, uh, what the president is doing, what I should do, what others in our party should do, is figure out what is the right approach here uh, to a long-term, uh, peaceful um, two-state solution with Israelis and Palestinians li- living side by side in peace. Um, and, uh, and I don't think we should approach this from the other way around, which is how do we deal with the politics of it and how that sh- should drive policy? Mm-hmm. We should figure out what's the right thing to do. Um, I also think that uh, the president has been uh, courageous in defending Israel's right to defend itself while also pressing uh, Israel to, as I said, reduce civilian casualties. He has also succeeded um, largely in deterring Iran from opening up a second front in the war with Hezbollah. There's certainly fighting that's going on in the north of Israel, but it could get a lot worse, and I, I'm glad that we have someone at the helm of his judgment and experience. Um, in terms of the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, I view the relationship between the U.S. and Israel as a state-to-state relationship, an important relationship. Um, I did not want our allies to abandon us when Donald Trump was our president because they despised our president. Uh, I would not have the U.S. abandon Israel because uh, we disagree with the Prime Minister. Um, it's up to Israelis at the end of the day to choose who their prime minister is, but that doesn't mean we don't try to um, advocate for and move the parties in the direction of a two-state solution. All right. We could spend all day with this, but you brought up Russia. So I would love to get you to respond to one of the like most common attacks on you from the right, which is this idea that you lied about former President Trump colluding with Russia to win the 2016 election. Um, You know, Republicans basically say, look at the Mueller report. Russia may have helped the Trump campaign, but it wasn't collusion. They weren't working together. What's your response? And maybe not to those people, but to independents who might have sort of heard about that and are going, wait, can I trust this guy? Like, what what are they talking about there? Yeah. You know, I got to give Donald Trump credit for one thing. Uh, His frequent repetition of the no collusion, no obstruction mantra really persuaded his party that if your campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, secretly meets with Russian intelligence and gives Russian intelligence internal campaign polling data or their battleground state strategy while Russian intelligence is helping you cheat in the election, um, 
that you shouldn't call that collusion. You should call that just good old-fashioned cheating with the enemy. Uh, that if your son, in this case Don Jr., is secretly uh, emailing Russians and the Russians are saying, as part of the Russian government's effort to help the Trump campaign, we've got dirt on Hillary Clinton, would you love it? And the president's son says, if it's what you say it is, we would love it, and the best timing is in summer, and in summer they start dumping stolen emails. Well, you can't call that collusion. Of course you can't. Can you imagine if Barack Obama had done any of these things, or Hillary Clinton, if Chelsea Clinton were secretly meeting with a Russian delegation and then lying about it, they'd be screaming collusion to the rafters. So there, you know, Trump's propaganda is good and successful. Uh, he threatens the Republicans that if they don't censure me, that he's going to primary challenge them. But uh, but the facts are pretty clear, as set out in the Mueller report, uh, since you mentioned it. And uh, but I, you know, I give him credit for, you know, having a good propaganda strategy. Well, speaking of propaganda uh, and Russia and Trump, um, Fox News are spewing and have been for many years now. They've been sued over it. Uh, lies about the election. Uh, you yourself uh, urged your supporters not to, to withdraw any advertising, you know, companies to stop advertising with uh, Fox. But now you're advertising on Fox, uh, giving them money that you've raised for your campaign. How how do those two things jive? Uh, look, I would love it if uh, everyone boycotted Fox, uh, including Democratic candidates. But it's not very effective to have one person boycott a network. And when my opponent went up on Fox... The choice we had to face was, um, are we going to not talk to people in ways my opponent is talking, or are we going to talk to voters in the same media? And I firmly believe you have to talk to people in the same media that your your opponents are talking to people. Uh, but I would love it if, uh, if as an organized effort, uh, Democrats and more than Democrats were not uh, helping to support in any way that network or these others. Uh, but uh, but a, a boycott of one doesn't really work very well. Can I ask you, I mean, you're running to fill a seat held by really a California political legend, Diane Feinstein. And, you know, she had so many incredible moments, but was, I think, seen as pretty out of step with the electorate by the end of her life. I wonder, like, when you think about the model she set, because I know you've talked, you know, very, you admire her and, and look up to her. Like, what would you want to bring with you from what she brought to the Senate? And what would you want to leave behind? You know, I would say two things um, that really are at the heart of our campaign. The first is that um, she was a great leader in some really tough fights. Uh, she took on the NRA, and we got an assault weapons ban. Uh, she took on the CIA, and we got a report about torture uh, at the CIA. Um, she had the— Took on the Obama the, administration in that case. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, she had the guts and the determination to take on really big fights. Um and but she had another skill too, um, and that skill was she was somebody who got things done. She wasn't just somebody who talked a good game. She was a doer. Uh, I mean, in Congress, you've got the the talkers and the doers, and you can pretty well very easily de de determine who is who. Um, she got things done. She met with people up and down the state. She worked hard to resolve problems. She brought billions back to California for water infrastructure, for housing, for mental health. Uh, she was a champion of open space. Uh, you know, I... It's also a different era. Well, it's a different era in some respects, but not in others. Uh, you know, people still want someone who can take on big fights. Uh, you know, I think we are doing well uh, in our campaign because people... 
uh, understand the threat to our democracy. They want someone in the Senate that is willing to take on a president of the United States and his MAGA armies if need be. Um, and I will do that again if need be. But they also want someone who's going to get things done, someone who can was a record of, of delivering, and I'm proud to have delivered light rail and delivered an early earthquake warning system and brought millions back for housing and uh, authored California's Patient Bill of Rights and legislation on press freedom and to attack nuclear proliferation. Um, it's why I have the support of so many of those colleagues you mentioned. Now, 80% of the House Democrats have endorsed me because they, too, are looking for someone in the Senate that's not a talker, that's a doer that will work with them to get things done. As you know, Senator Feinstein, along with Barbara Boxer, were elected in the year of the woman, 1992. California has had had two women in the Senate representing them for many years. Now I know Barbara Boxer has endorsed you, as has you Nancy Pelosi. But you, <laughs> you have many wonderful qualities, but you are definitely not a woman. What do you say to women who feel that going from two women to potentially two men as their senators feel like that's a setback? Um, First of all, I would say that representation is very important, and voters are going to consider, they should consider issues of gender and issues of race. I think uh, both of those things are very important. Um, but I'm asking voters to also consider who is who is uh, a track record of taking on big fights and, uh, and who is on the sidelines, and also who's got an ability to get things done. Um, who do they think is going to be successful in bringing down the cost of housing? And uh, who has a track record of delivering? And who's going to fight for resources to come back to California? Um, I'm going to do what Senator Feinstein did and bring back billions to the state. Any senator who says they're not willing to do that uh, is basically saying to the other 49 states, you can have the money. We'll continue to be a donor state in California. So I, I would say... Um, consider my record uh, as well. And I'm, I'm confident voters will consider all these things. All right. We're going to leave it right there. Congressman Adam Schiff, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And thanks. you can hear our other interviews with Katie Porter and Barbara Lee on our podcast. But that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today was Jim Bennett. Our producers are Guy Maserati and Izzy Bloom. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Join us tomorrow for a conversation with Governor Gavin Newsom. We'll see you then. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love. 
while also getting access to cool events, behind the scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support.